Hello and welcome to COVID-19 and the EU, a podcast where we look at how the EU is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and look to the future for EU citizens living in the era of COVID-19 in the context of travel, health, vaccines and other areas that affect our lives. In this episode, I spoke to Karen Coleman, journalist and editor of Europarl Radio. We discussed the work of Europarl Radio, the EU's response to COVID, Irish media coverage of the pandemic, and the traffic light system which Ireland is set to adopt to allow travel for citizens within the EU. On the podcast, I have Karen Coleman, an Irish broadcaster, journalist and author, former BBC foreign correspondent. Karen has also hosted the award-winning Wide Angle Radio Show on News Talk Radio for many years. She's now editor of Europarl Radio, which covers European Parliament news for Irish radio stations. The ethos of Europarl Radio is to help people in Ireland understand what is happening in the European Parliament. Karen, thanks for joining me on the podcast. You're usually in Brussels, isn't that right? Well, it's funny. I'm a kind of a hybrid reporter, uh, Paul. I, I'm based in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, but would be back and forth to Strasbourg and then to Brussels in the old days, pre-COVID days, to cover primarily the plenary sessions of the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. So it's like an agency. We cover the stories, we interview Irish MEPs and other MEPs, and we send out all of those stories and news clips to the radio stations. But obviously, and then, so I'd go out there for those plenaries and come back to Galway as well. Since lockdown, I've been based back here. um, And indeed, the Parliament has been in a very strange situation where a lot of the plenaries, well, first of all, they began remotely. So the MEPs just simply stayed at home and participated remotely. Then as COVID was declining during the summer months, a lot of MEPs were going back out, not to Strasbourg, but to Brussels. But now that COVID is on the rise again, and in particular in Belgium, where one of the European parliaments is based, it's kind of gone all hybrid and remote again. So it's a weird kind of a situation. So from, from your own point of view, then, do you find that this has affected your work in that, you know, are you still getting the same sort of access that you would have got? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, it's been fine, actually. So what happened was in the early days when we moved remotely, when all of the MEPs had to tune in to the parliament remotely from their homes, they just got on Skype with me and we started doing the interviews then over Skype. And gradually the technology started to improve. So, you know, they started getting microphones and and, and the quality started to improve. And like all these things, Paul, it's challenging at the beginning, like so many different businesses and people we've had to adapt, but it, but it was fine um, and we've been able to cover it. Now we have a Europarl Radio is a, a very good journalist in Brussels, Kevin uh, Purcell, who's been doing the Brussels-based coverage for us. He's actually doing it this week at the moment. There's a, a, a parliamentary plenary session on there um, and he's able to get out there as well. I mean, Obviously, meeting a politician physically and having that personal rapport is always really preferable to doing something remotely. So it's by no means perfect, but we, we have been able to continue the coverage and largely stay on top of what's happening out there. I guess uh, the topic for discussion today is COVID-19 and part of your your job and your remit is to, to cover the European Parliament and the EU institutions. So could I just get your opinion on the EU institutional responses to the crisis? 
and and secondly to that how how does the eu institutional response in general compare to how ireland is responding well i suppose if we if we look at the eu eu institutional and and eu response we know that in the early months the initial months when covid landed on european shores and particularly around February and March, when when countries like Italy in particular were incredibly badly hit. And I'm sure we all remember those harrowing scenes of hospitals and ICU units in in the Italian hospitals being completely chaotic and so many patients landing up there and very difficult situations. And definitely the EU, as in the EU now 27 without the UK, did not behave very well. Um, Borders were closed in some cases and there were restrictions on vital medical supplies being transported to countries in need. And Italy in particular was badly in need of this stuff in the early days. And I think that kind of horrified a lot of people in the EU and raised questions about the solidarity of the EU. And that did shake, I think, the EU institutions as well. I think there was a recognition that if the EU did not show solidarity among the 27 member states, then it would be in severe trouble in terms of its future as a cohesive unit. And that definitely led to a greater response and a better response to create EU-wide initiatives. And, you know, over then the following months, certainly the EU began to pull together. And you may remember that in July of this year, following many uh, difficult meetings between the EU 27 leaders about how they were going to respond financially to the crisis, there was an agreement to come up with what's called the COVID recovery plan, next generation EU. It's 750 billion euro of a recovery plan made up of around 390 billion euro in grants and 360 billion in low interest loans. And you may remember that during the weeks leading up to that, the so-called frugal EU states like the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Austria, sometimes Finland, were reluctant to have so much money being given in grants. Um, and, and there was a bit of a battle, but, but there was a sense in the end that, although reluctantly from those member states, there was a need to come up with, you know, grants for the countries that were very badly hit. And since then, I think, you know, the EU institutions have come together. The EU Commission and Ursula von der Leyen, its president, they've been quite strong about making sure there was a very strong recovery plan and that countries that were struggling were going to be helped. And so they've come up now with a whole plethora of sort of various initiatives to help countries. It's again, not perfect. Nothing is when you start talking about EU-wide initiatives with the EU 27 member states, but it's definitely better than it was in the early months. Do you think there'll be a a positive follow-on in the years to come for EU member states, including Ireland, in terms of health and how we manage the health sector in in each state? In that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, not enough ICU beds, for example, not enough um, PPE equipment, you know, not, not enough preparedness for something like this. Can you see that being a, something that will come from, from the EU that will trickle down? Yeah, I mean, definitely, actually, as part of this recovery plan, uh, the EU came up with its EU for Health initiative. It's a 9.4 billion preparedness program, actually. And it, it, it's got, you know, various initiatives to help Europe cope with these kinds of outbreaks in the future. The problem with health is it's it's a known country, own member state initiative. So the EU doesn't have competencies to set laws really as such when it comes to 
how we each as individual member states manage health issues. But I know that, um, and this goes way back before the COVID um, era, there have been concerns about the dependency for countries like Ireland and other EU member states on vital medical supplies or pharmaceutical, you know, vital drugs that come from outside the EU. In fact, the now former Fine Gael MEP Mairead McGuinness and our new commissioner, you know, she, she did several interviews with me about concerns about medicines um, being short of, that, that we didn't within the EU have the competency to make our own medicines. And I think the COVID crisis certainly highlighted weaknesses in that sense that we, we have been very dependent, even if it's on the likes of PPE, on, sometimes on, on countries like China. And I think maybe that awareness will definitely lead to each individual member state really making sure that they don't, they don't find themselves in those vulnerable positions again, and that they are able to get their hands on vital medical supplies, such as PPE, or as you mentioned, for ICUs, you know, ventilators, and they're not dependent on those vital supplies coming from non-EU member states. Can I just touch a little bit on the Irish media's coverage of COVID-19 and the crisis, there's been some criticism in some quarters of maybe an obsession with case numbers being reported every day, and perhaps this is causing unnecessary panic and concern in the general public. What's your, uh, your take on the Irish media coverage? Do you think it's at saturation points, or do you think it's just about, it's about right for the level of crisis that we have? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question, Paul, and I can understand why there is that criticism right now, because we're in an era of COVID fatigue. I mean, people are really, really weary of the COVID story. I think, you know, the Irish media and, and, and plenty of our other colleagues around Europe and the world have done a very, really good job in, in covering what has been a very, very tough and difficult story. And people forget sometimes the toll it takes on the journalists themselves, you know, constantly going out, trying to cover the story and journalists have had to go out and do interviews and cover this when COVID has been around and they've had to take care of themselves as well. And and they've done a really great job. But I do think that we're probably entering a sort of a watershed period now where there's no question about it. I mean, and it's a conversation we're having in, in my own home on a regular basis now. Is there a need to be focusing every night, say we'll say on, on the 6-1 News and RTE, the daily told the daily roll call of sure. how many new cases and how many deaths. And, and I think that perhaps there is a need to balance. There are very few fatalities, thankfully, now. When you look at the number of cases, you know, sometimes you'll have over a thousand new cases, but you'll only have maybe one or two or three deaths. And so, and, and that's kind of remained pretty consistent. So I think perhaps the media do need to start looking at maybe balancing things more. And, and one thing I think too is it would be nice to see a broader range of voices and people appearing, especially on the national broadcast waves, that we are not seeing the same experts, whether they're medical experts or NEFED experts, whoever, and that we get a more broad range in terms of the views and the expertise as well, because I'm a little concerned sometimes that particularly we'll say those in the medical field who speak out against the consensus and, and you know, the general view that they get hammered afterwards by their peers and 
and, and those who have access to the airwaves. And I think that's not a good thing. I don't think the cancel culture or, or censoring people or, you know, really heavily criticizing people who have different views is a good thing for our society. So I definitely would like to see a broader range of people being interviewed. And, and maybe, you know, we should dial down the COVID, the, the alarmist sort of tone of, of, of some of maybe the news in the way it is covered. People are under enormous, enormous stress. This new lockdown is going to put people under huge stress. I'm already, you know, I'm hearing stories. I live in the West of Ireland. I'm hearing stories about people ending up in very serious situations in the hospitals. It's COVID related, but not to do with the virus, but it's to do with the stress uh, that they are under. And I think, you know, listening constantly to grim news is not good in in our job and and i sympathize i mean i've been in broadcasting for years and every day you try and look at can we do a new angle on a story and there's always the dilemma well if it's a big story we can't ignore it but how do we do it in a different way and i think a refresh of of the button in, in terms of you know maybe looking at the story in new ways and maybe beginning to bring in other stories, they don't have to be good news stories, but there are lots of other things happening in this country and outside the world that I think are not just being covered right now because of COVID. Well, that kind of is a nice segue to lead, lead me on to the next point I was going to ask about um, coverage and, and your own role with covering the, the European Parliament. I spoke to Claire Daly, MEP, on this podcast, and she was critical of the apparent lack of media coverage in Ireland of the work of the European Parliament and the work of Irish MEPs. She cited a recent coverage and, and promotion she, she had in Bulgaria um, over Bulgarian workers' rights. And, 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 and she felt that it took off in Bulgaria or her name became known in Bulgaria because more Bulgarian citizens are exposed to European Parliament media. So notwithstanding the contribution of Europarl Radio to the public realm in Ireland, would you agree that EU institutions are ignored or forgotten about in Irish media in general? And how does it compare to other EU jurisdictions? Well, first of all, I'll address uh, the Claire Daly issue. And I'm, I know that Claire uh, criticizes Irish media, but in fact, every month, uh, practically, when Europarl Radio is out in either Brussels or Strasbourg, we approach Claire Daly um, and, and others in the independent, uh, Independence for Change and indeed Luke Ming Flanagan for interviews, and we don't get any responses. And, and we've tried numerous times, in fact, to get Claire Daly on the airwaves, and she, in fact, hasn't been um, forthcoming in terms of doing an interview with us, which is disappointing. And I would certainly like to interview Claire and, and talk to her more about the work that she does and her colleagues. But it is far easier to get MEPs from the other parties of different different political persuasions, including uh, Sinn Féin as well. So, so I think the the response in terms of coverage of Claire is more nuanced, perhaps than you know than than you may think to begin with. It is always a challenge to try and get to cover what's going on in EU politics and in the EU Parliament and in the EU Commission in a way that makes sense for people. The trouble is that a lot of what goes on there now really does impact on our lives. And so 
I regard it as there's an onus on me to make sure that if it's a complicated story, that we try and make it as, as easy to understand. We, we cut through the sort of, you know, the Eurocratic speak that's out there and that we make it an interesting story and a relevant story for people. There's always the problem, Paul, that, you know, when something happens far away, it's in another country, it, it is tough to try and engage people with it. But I find what goes on at European level really, really interesting. I mean, I love the European politics. I, I think the stories that are being, that are happening, the legislation that's going to go through now from this commission that's going to go through the parliament, the raft of initiatives and all the other things that happen there. I mean, I find I find it very interesting, but, but it's always a challenge to try and engage people with stories that happen out there. I think you're right in that getting that point across to people about of how important legislation passed in Europe is to them and their lives that that doesn't really always seem to be that apparent that media in general don't get that across very well and it's using the word story is probably important to turn it into something compelling and uh, something that people can latch on to and and maybe they see bureaucratic politics in Brussels and they don't really feel they want to engage with that it's kind of boring and it's you know, it's not really for me. Maybe if you had more scandals like we have in Irish politics, maybe that people would latch onto it a bit more. I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's true. I'm sure there are scandals out there as well in your politics and we may not be always aware of them but I mean you know there are a lot of stories that definitely impact on people for example I'm even looking at um, a story Kevin now Kevin Purcell who, who's who's covering the parliament for Europarl Radio he's just been doing a story on this traffic light system the travel traffic light system that's going to I think Ireland's going to uh, adapt it early on in November and 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 that's kind of part of an EU move to make sure that we have more uniformity in terms of if you go to one EU country, what are the rules? And if you go to another, I think there are three different colors, amber, red, and maybe orange or something like that. But, you know, that's a story now that's been covered in the European Parliament. That's at least happening in the European Parliament this week. And, you know, I think that's an example of something that will definitely impact on people too. And just on that, I was going to ask about the traffic light system. And I suppose we'll wrap up on this. I think maybe the November 8th, our government are, are looking at possibly signing up to this traffic light system so and um, does this mean that you will try and get back to brussels as soon as it is safe to do so i can't see myself going back to brussels at the moment as long i mean i don't you know i don't know now what it means in terms of if you go to brussels what what you would have to do when you come back here i'd have to look at that at the moment um belgium covid is 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 raging through belgium and in fact this particular European Parliament plenary session has been held remotely. And, and Kevin, who's been covering it for Europarl Radio, said, you know, it was there were very few MEPs around the Parliament this week for the plenary. A lot of them are dialing in remotely. So it, it just would be too risky, you know, to to fly to Brussels and then to have to come back and, and, and quarantine. So I can't see myself going there for a while. But but we're lucky. We, we have the wherewithal. We have, we have, you know, Kevin is out there who can yeah. cover it in person. Well, listen... Karen, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Okay, Paul, good luck with it. And it's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's it. More episodes coming soon. Thanks to Karen Coleman for being my guest on COVID-19 and the EU. For more info on the European Parliament Radio, check out europarlradio.eu. Be sure to subscribe on nearcast.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 and the EU is produced with the support of the Communicate in Europe initiative.